0: You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Timeform, the trusted source of racing data and analysis. By the Racehorse Owners Association. And by the Racing App, in partnership with Fitzdares. Good morning, welcome to the show. Friday, March the 1st. It was torrential here in TW11 this morning, but it is brightening up a shade now. Thank goodness. No plans to inspect at Newbury over the weekend. The feature meeting in the UK comes from Kelso. Now, first of all, we need to start with news of Constitution Hill. Test result was not what we were hoping for, said Nikki Henderson yesterday. Uh, The test showed a significant degree of inflammation, and that was after that evidence of mucus was found in the scope following the work at Kempton on Tuesday. and We have talked and talked and talked and everybody has talked and talked and talked. Lydia Hislop is back and is with me today. Uh, Lydia, we need to give our uh, mandatory nod to Constitution Hill. I think yesterday was a, a less good day as regards his prospects uh, of appearing in the champion hurdle.
1: I suppose the positive is that, it, as Nicky Henderson says, at the end of his statement that he put out yesterday, at least it tells us exactly where we are. It might not be the better news that he was hoping for but they know what they're dealing with and I'm not sure it takes it any takes the horse any further backwards in the conversations that we've all been having you know he will be fit enough it's obviously as long as he's able to overcome this blip of a chest infection it's obviously not a positive it will encourage many of his potential rivals but I think everybody will be hoping that the reigning champion hurdler gets over this blip and is able to defend his title and able to defend it well.
0: All right, we're continuing our rounds this week of trainers with multiple entries at the Cheltenham Festival who have a chance, and Kim Bailey has two chances, uh, Chianti, Classico and trelawn They're both competitive, but in which races, I wonder. Um, Kim, you've made various suggestions about where they're going to go up to this point. Are you pretty firm in your mind where where they're headed?
2: I think most probably, um, obviously, I haven't discussed it with um, both owners, but they're, I mean, they're both very keen to run the ultimate. And, um, you know, that's as that's, that's, much as I don't like having two runs in the same race. We've done it before, um, and it is Cheltenham. So they have, both have every right to be going for that particular race. So, you know, I think that's where they're headed up going.
0: Uh, and it, notwithstanding the, the owner's preferences, is that the race that you think best suits both horses?
2: I think probably, yes, is the answer to that um you know they're, they're both they're both on the right end of the handicap, if you want to put it that way um the alternative race is the is the Kim your. Um, and it's a, it's a difficult one to call when, you know, Chianti Classico is nearly favourite for the ultimate. The other one is not a, is not an easy ride. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a difficult decision all round. But uh, no, I think it's the right race for both of them to run in. It's, in much as a, you know, it's not ideal for me, but I mean, for the owner's point of view, it, it is, you know, the horses are running the right races, which is the most important thing. Mm, I didn't realise
0: I'd got you into trouble the other day. For so I didn't mean to draw you into suggesting that there were no decent amateurs in Britain, but I think I know what you meant. <laughs>
2: Yes, it caused a lot of aggravation and... uh um, I had some quite interesting uh, emails from various various members of the amateur fraternity. Um, and it's not you know, it is it's uh, I'm having a, a splat with the BHA about or I had a splat with the BHA about this whole situation of amateurs. I think it's very difficult because at the end of it, how on earth are amateurs get going nowadays? You know, there's less point to pointing. Um and obviously if if it happens to be a Labour government get in, then there's a possibility hunting will be banned, so therefore the whole situation the point of point to pointing throws itself in doubt and uh,
0: Well hang on a minute. It hasn't wasn't wasn't hunting banned in nineteen 98 or whatever
2: well absolutely but they're still they're still hunting is still going on as far as raising money for hunts etc for, for their social arrangements and, and point to pointing is still there doing it but uh, if hunting is completely stopped so trail hunting and everything else that goes with it then the future of point to pointing must be in doubt
0: how how on earth could you bring in legislation to stop trail hunting when you're not actually hunting an animal
2: well, that's that's what the, no, that's what they sort of announced the other day. So, um, any form of um, any form of people riding a horse across country seems to be
0: banned. So, it's, that, that, that's but that's you can't you can't ban people riding across country, can you?
2: No, I don't suppose you can. But um, it seems to be something that the, that came out in the manifesto the other day but as I, a wish
0: dream. But I get your point, which is that that if if um, the organisations that are that are effectively funding and providing volunteer forces to point to points are disbanded in in some way or it is more difficult for them to continue then the point pointing starts to starts to struggle because it doesn't have that volunteer workforce upon which it relies to, to to happen and it doesn't have the land on which to run correct right so
2: yeah, and that opens up a, a complete um, new way of how on earth do you get amateurs going i mean amateurs will disappear from the site of the earth because at the end of it there won't be the support for them to go and to learn, and uh, until they change the, the rules whereby amateurs and conditional jockeys can ride against each other as in, in hurdle races and fences. After they've had a certain number of rides, they can ride against professionals. But uh, you know, it's a bit odd when a professional jockey or conditional jockey can ride against professionals on day one, and an amateur jockey has to have 25 wins or 25 rides or whatever to to justify being a, um, able to go and ride against professionals. And it makes it quite—it's going to make it very difficult in years to come.
0: Uh, just on the on that point, I mean, I suppose there'd be a few people listening here who will think, "Well, is there any point to amateurs in the sport anyway? Isn't it a professional sport? If you've got young riders coming through, shouldn't we just be encouraging them through traditional apprentice slash conditional routes? What's the what is the point of the amateur branch of the sport? I think I know the answer to that, but I'd be interested to hear your your thoughts on it."
2: Well, I, I think taking the amateur situation away completely would be very sad for the sport because, at the end of it, there are a lot of people who probably start off with a slightly heavier condition they would do normally. Um, and uh, you know, if they if they can show their willing and, and ability to go and ride against professionals and do well, then, you know, the, the modern form of diets can make a big difference to someone's frame. Um, and it is it is difficult. And how do you persuade someone? to get going in either as a conditional jockey or as an amateur. It's, it's, you know, nowadays, the amateurs don't get paid um, until they've ridden a certain number of rides. Um, the conditional jockeys do get paid. So you're, no, you're in a situation where a conditional jockey starting off is paid the same as a, as a fully fledged professional. Um, and you begin to wonder whether the economics of the sport make it very difficult to get these young kids going. <laughs>
0: with that under our belt um, what about the relative chances of the two horses non amateur ridden in the uh, in the ultra of course there will be others pointing out the irony of the fact that you've just advocated for amateur riders but you're not giving either of them a ride
2: no it's a different well, it's way it's not it's a very difficult situation because at the end of it um, you know both owners are very keen to go for the ultimate and therefore it, if that's what they want to go and do it's very difficult to turn them around and say we go somewhere else and and uh, um, it's the right race for them. Um, and, uh, you, you know, they, ha- they had multiple entries, but we weren't to know where we were when we made those entries. So, uh, you know, all these, all these early closing races make it quite difficult. You'd rather scatter the book around
0: to try okay. and out where you want to go. I'm going to pull you out of the rabbit hole. Who's David Bass going to ride?
2: He will make his decision nearer the time.
0: Who should he ride?
2: I think he'll end up riding Candy Classico. Okay.
0: And, and he does look a really kind of pretty straightforward customer, doesn't he? What you see is what you get.
2: Yeah, and I mean he's he has been to Cheltenham once before. He went last year and it didn't suit him one IOSHA, but he came back and he's very distressed afterwards and he showed to us that he needed a wind operation, which he's done. Um and then this year he's been a completely different horse. He's a he's a very professional jumper. Um and I don't see why he shouldn't he shouldn't suit Cheltenham.
0: And what about Trelawn, who clearly is quirky to say the very least. Um but at Cheltenham, funnily enough, he kind of looked okay.
2: Yeah, no, he ran a good race at Cheltenham. I mean, if he jumped at last, he would have gone very close to winning it. I mean, he made a howler at the last. Um, and I've been itching to run him over three miles. It's been very difficult, bizarrely, to, to find the suitable races for him because uh, every time we had a potential three-mile race for him, the ground was good or good to firm. Um, and he's a horse that definitely wants soft ground. We ran him on good to soft ground at uh, uh, Carlisle first time out, um, and it was quick enough for him. He came back and had problems with his shins afterwards. So, you no, know, ground is a big preference for him. Um, so the rain at this moment in time is actually ideal. So, uh, but he, as you say, he's quirky. He's got loads of ability. Um, he ran off the course at Weatherby, which is very frustrating. He did exactly the same um, at Exeter when he, on his second run over, over hurdles, he was very good last time at Exeter on a track that, uh, also on a course that, on a day that didn't really suit him because they went so slowly and turned into a sprint. Um, but it was still a good run. Um, you know, three miles will definitely suit him, um, and he's been around the course, so he's got a little bit of experience there.
0: And have you got a rider lined up for him?
2: I have. Well, I mean, Kieran guessing is my second his second rider, says there's every possibility he might ride him. He has ridden him before. Um, again, it's a conversation I have to have with the owners when they come back from holiday.
0: The trainer, Kim Bailey there, ostensibly on the chances of Trelawne and Chianti Classico in the Ultima Handicap Chase at the Cheltenham Festival. More interestingly... On what he'd been reading up on and what I have just been reading up on subsequent to that interview, which was a pledge made by Steve Reed, the Shadow Secretary of State for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, that if a Labour government got in, then they would impose an all-out ban on trail and drag hunting. Obviously, Hunting with Wild Animals Act, after Blair got in in 1997, banned fox hunting as we knew it then. But this would ban all trail hunting and uh, drag hunting. I'm not entirely sure how that's um, enforceable, but there you go. I put a call in to Tim Bonner, who's the chief executive of the Countryside Alliance, and I began by asking him what he understood by the proposed legislation.
3: Well, what
4: Steve Reid said was quite surprising, because for some time there's been mutterings in the Labour Party uh, and there have been people on the left and the animal rights movement, they've been pushing an agenda, which has all, been all about the allegation that some hunts might not always be operating legally and that therefore the Hunting Act needs to be strengthened. I mean, we, you know, from a cuts our perspective, we think that in, in, in the grand list of priorities in the world, this is so low. Um, that it shouldn't even be on the agenda and that, and that the fact that Labour are even discussing it has an impact on, on, on um, rural voters you know, ac- ac- across the countryside, not particularly uh, or necessarily because of their views of hunting, but because this is just not a priority for, for people in rural communities. Um, but what Steve Reed said went a step beyond that, and it was very worrying. Uh, it's all very worrying, but this was very worrying, because he was talking about banning, very specifically, about banning drag hunting and trail hunting which are the activities that the, that the Labour Party said people should be doing, that hunts should be operating. Uh, when they banned hunting um, uh, wild, wild animals uh, 20 years ago, they said that we should be going off to hunt artificial scents. Now we're doing that, and, and apparently they want to ban that too. Um, so that was particularly surprising. And frankly, it's existential because you can't have a hunt if you can't hunt anything. Um, and so, the whole social and economic infrastructure, which uh, is, yeah, which goes round hunts and, and the hunting community, that is yeah, that that would come to an end. And obviously, you know, in the context of this, call that includes point pointing um, and the uh, and the point points that are run by hunts. So uh, there are any number of actions that we need to take off the back of that, we're encouraging our members, and they are in their thousands at the moment, uh, to email Steve Reid uh, and ask him why on earth this is a priority and why he is now banning, seeking to ban something that, 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 that 20 years ago Labour were telling us that we should be doing. Um, but there, and there's also a lot of activity going on in rural constituencies where the polls suggest to us that, that um, there will be big swings from Conservative to Labour. Um, and where those rural voters are we're looking for, for our members and supporters to, to, to lobby candidates and get a message across to them that this really shouldn't be on anybody's list of priorities let alone an incoming government um, and there are also some really significant legal questions here I mean you know, the, the rights of, uh, of individual are on what basis could you justify saying that you can't take some dogs out and, uh, and, and follow a, an aniseed line across the countryside which is what you know drag hunts and trail hunts and uh, you a artificial. to been hunting artificial scents for, for hundreds of years, alongside fox hunting, in many cases. So this is, you know, it's frankly bizarre. And, and Peter Mandelson, who has spoken a couple of times on this issue, and obviously a guru of the Labour Party, has made his views very clear. That I think he said that this was a third or fourth order issue in terms of an election, and Labour just shouldn't
0: be but, engaging with it. But, uh, but as, as we saw, Tim, in the before the nineteen ninety seven election, the the issue is like catnip. To voters, isn't it? It it, it massively um, overindexes in terms of it in terms of its impact relative to perhaps its importance uh, compared to, compared to one or two other things.
4: No, no, it's not catnip to voters, and this is a really important point. You go out and ask voters tomorrow, ask them to you know, uh, to, to, to name a, a dozen issues uh, that that might affect their vote at the next election. Nobody will mention
0: hunting. No, no, that but that but but when but when it is. This
4: is catnip for the left. This is about. The, the, the politics of, of the Labour Party and the left of the Labour Party. And absolutely, I, I accept that there are people there who are obsessed with this issue. And they remain obsessed with this issue. And it's got absolutely
0: nothing to do with hounds or horses no, or boxes or but, any of this stuff. But, but when it is a challenge. Tim, when I say it, it's, um, it's catnip to the, to the, vote, to the voter, I'm, it's a bit like if you asked. 100 people, what their, their top 10 priorities are. I don't suppose any of those 100 would say, uh, put VAT on private school fees, for example. Yet, if the policy is advanced, people go, oh, yes, I'm in favour of that. It's a bit like, so you go, go out and ask a whole load of people if trail hunting should be banned it, it, it sort of it, it, it incites a visceral reaction in people that that may or may not be, be disproportionate to the reality I mean uh, and, and
4: uh, absolutely, absolutely and Tom does and we know the animal welfare agenda um, including racing this is the real challenge and there are lots of people who at a very low level you know have Concerns about activities and activists. The, the, the game of the game of the animal rights movement of the activists generally is to is to find those issues, those soft issues, where they can persuade politicians that, that people don't like this. Therefore, you can ban it. Um, the fact that that's going to make no difference to people's votes is is, is sometimes gets, mm-hmm. gets, gets gets pushed aside. Um, so this is hugely challenging. Um, But there are back lines and and, the the Alliance will will fight this battle. Um, And just as in 1997, I do believe it's critical, um, not just for, for hunting, and this has never just been about hunting, but because there is a there is an agenda. We all know there is an agenda, and it starts with hunting, which has always been particularly obsessed. Yeah, which the left of on politics have all been particularly obsessed about. But it, it includes, you know, things like grouse shooting um, and racing. You know, they're, they're, they are all on the agenda. We we, we know that, um, and the alliance's the strategy, has always been to, to to run towards the sound of the guns and and. You know, hunting will be a political battle again, ridiculously, even after 700 hours of parliamentary time were spent on it in the 90s and early 2000s. Um, but, but we will fight this battle, and mm. I hope that all um, reasonable and sensible-thinking people will know that, you know that there has to be a logical conclusion to
0: this, because otherwise it sets an appalling precedent for any number of other activities. And, and clearly, most people listening to this podcast, they are just worried about the future of horse racing the survival of horse racing the survival of the amateur branch of the horse racing uh, the ability for point pointing to continue um, what message would you send if any to the british horse racing authority as regards safeguarding the future of point pointing if trail hunting and that social infrastructure is is threatened as you as you suggest it will be
4: well i mean i don't have to to, to send too many messages to the BHA or the, or the Jack Club or others. Which, I mean, we engage with them, you know, from time to time on, on, on these issues anyway. But I think the message to everyone is quite clear that... that, that yeah, there is a practical consequence there would be a practical consequence of uh, if if the, the the worst happened and and the whole infrastructure of hunting was dismantled because that is the, the infrastructure which largely runs um point-to-point racing um but i, I honestly think that's you know, that, that probably is a second order issue for racing in, in, uh, and the first order issue is the precedent that this sort of legislation sets essentially that, that politicians can go around banning things on the basis of claims claims about animal welfare, um, yeah, on, on, we, we, but it's really about the whims of politics and prejudice, uh, and yeah, that, that that's the that's the fundamental case. Whether you're racing a, a, a dog. Uh, a a, um, a horse or a pigeon Mm. these these issues these issues remain the same Uh, so i think we all need to be united in
0: in, in opposing um illogical and prejudiced legislation Uh, tim how answerable do you think certain hunts have to be for the likelihood of such legislation i.e. has their irresponsibility and inability to stay within the reframed law meant that they have simply given grist to their opponent's mill.
4: Yes, absolutely. Uh, And I bear the scars on my back from um, uh, trying to get some of those people to understand the reality of the situation. It drives me absolutely berserk. Um, I have used the model of uh, racing and the uh, the way the racing industry has embraced self-regulation and standards, Um, uh, which is an absolute model. And, And the Grand National. The changes made to the Grand National being absolutely, you know, a, a, a really good example of how to address the challenges of politics and, uh, and the animal rights movement. So yes, there is a there there, there is fault um, across the board, um, but that doesn't mean. That the sort of proposals we see at the moment are justified and the vast majority of people yeah the majority of people in the hunting world are acting legitimately and properly and to suggest that you can simply legislate them out of existence because you know you've got an excuse because some other people might not have behaved quite so well that that still doesn't justify that sort of legislation and those proposals.
0: Uh, Tim Bonner thank you so much. Thanks a lot Nick. All right, that was Tim Bonner, Chief Executive of the Countryside Alliance. And prior to that, Kim Bailey. It's funny how, Lydia, you can, you can sit down at your desk at 7 o'clock in the morning going one way and then end up somewhere yeah. com- completely different. But suddenly I've now got, as Tim Bonner liked to say, an existential question on my hands yeah. of whether another piece of, of government legislation, albeit from a different government, could actually threaten at least a portion of um, of horse racing's assets what do you what do you think
1: well just to think to focus on his uh interview with you first of all specifically i'm glad he addressed the allegation that he referred to at the start that um from animal welfare organisations that some hunts might not always be operating legally and therefore that the Hunting Act needs to be stronger and at the end he acknowledges he he faced up to that by saying that some people have been acting irresponsibly within the hunting community which has given grist to their opponents mill um, because that makes it easier for those horse racing fans and there are many and perhaps even some in the in the horse racing community who don't agree with fox hunting to support the Countryside Alliance's position on any further actions on drag and trail hunting um, illegal activity obviously should be addressed because it is undermining that whole community but what's being proposed by uh, the Shadow Minister the Shadow Secretary of State for Environment Steve Reed, is as Tim Bonner says going a lot further and it it seems illogical and really slightly unpleasant to be targeting drag and trail hunting, which is by definition, an artificial scent. Um, and it, it does intrude further. And this seems to be a, a current theme in society, either from the left or the right of politics, if you can discern the difference between the two at times, um, uh, about infringements on individuals, freedom, um, when he talked about the labor party the and this being the politics of the left it's the politics of the left of the labor party isn't it because under keir starmer this opposition has appeared to be at the other end of that labor spectrum either pushing out or um or bringing into strict line or, and sometimes over, overstepping it in in my opinion um, anything from that far left but at the same time i can see his arguments that the, uh, a ban in this way and what you were saying about catnip is low-hanging fruit and for the vast majority of uh, the population might fall into the who cares category because they wouldn't fully understand the impact on the local community, a rural community, and the rural infrastructure there. And then they wouldn't certainly fully understand the knock-on impact on, to point- on the point-to-pointing community and therefore on British horse racing and one of the very fundamental um, assets of the sport. I mean, going back to what Kim Bailey was saying earlier, to my mind amateur participation in horse racing is absolutely vital. They they make a, a rich part of the sport. Um, they add a, an element to it. They maintain the link between the grassroots and the elite end of the sport. And I think that is absolutely vital. Um, and also what I think the wider public probably wouldn't understand is how much that um, amateur, the the flourishing and the, the success of, of that amateur community actually is a fundamental part of the way in which employment thrives within the racing industry, because it is those kind of fans who are able to pursue their amateur pursuit, who um, are so much part of the fabric of working within horse racing, tending to horses, loving horses, developing horses, all of those things, which is absolutely fundamental to the well-being of the sport. And when there are so many um, things that are attacking the sport from so many different angles for this to be yet another one and you know the point to point yeah. to britain needs reviving anyway uh, it needs some help anyway and and this is very very concerning
0: yeah i i would agree and of course the the very roots of the word amateur you know love love for the sport if if we're if we're worried about anything it's people's loss of love for the game loss of passion for it loss of enthusiasm of you know taking away our our fan base taking away our links with smaller tight knit rural communities i mean let's face it we're pretty bloody inept at getting you know urbanites to the racecourse course <laughs> never never mind people who should be racing's natural natural constituents
1: very much so very very much so and you would hope that uh with the i mean we're all expecting there to be a Labour government next after the election later on this year. That's what the polls are indicating. And you would hope that in that they are seeking to be... um, Actually, converting into actual votes people who have voted for other parties at the last election, under when a very different Labour proposition was being put forward, that they wouldn't be seeking to undermine things that a great number of those people actively enjoy. And, you know, the the drag hunting and trail hunting are are doing nobody any harm.
0: Okay, I'm going to ask all of you for your help now. And I'm, I'm really hoping that you will be able to, to give it not to me, but, uh, lucy horan lucy works for weatherby's hamilton weatherby's one of our partners here on the podcast Uh, she rides out regularly for charlie fellows and has been a a key part of that team for a long time she also competed in the Macmillan charity race at york which we give a lot of exposure to on this podcast in 2022 and she raised an enormous, enormous amount of money for cancer charities now lucy requires your help and she joins me now Lucy, just just tell us why, and just tell us about about your recent diagnosis.
3: So, on the thirty first of January this year, um, I was unfortunately diagnosed with stage four metastatic breast cancer. Um, which, as you can imagine, <laughs> as a twenty eight year old um, young lady, fit, healthy, no, never had any health issues. Um, no, you know, if, yeah, there's, there was nothing wrong with me. I just noticed a small lump in the. Um, upper right quadrant of my left breast um, and uh, had it biopsied and was was diagnosed with breast cancer um, which obviously as you can imagine came as quite a shock
0: <laughs> and this is something that you immediately um, had had seen as soon as you as soon as you noticed as well so it was yeah, not I'm as serious. though it, there was no there was no gap you hadn't you hadn't buried your head in the sand or anything like that
3: Not at all. No, I'm quite a, um, a conscious person of my body. And as soon as I noticed it, I was like, Oh, that's a bit strange. I just didn't think too much of it because obviously, you know, you can get a lot of benign things in your body like that. And, um, but for a woman and to, it was just, it was just. It was unusual, and so I got straight on it. And um, the NHS were fantastic in sort of getting me in quickly getting biopsied. Um, and yeah, but it, it was only about a month from when I first noticed it on Christmas Eve to when I was first diagnosed, and um, that I, I got the I you know got the results of that. Um, so they move really quickly, um, but obviously, um, yeah, it was it still it was quite unbelievable, really, and I still can't really believe it. But we are where we are. <laughs> so what have
0: you? Been- been told, Lucy, in terms of the treatment, the prognosis, and what needs to be done now.
3: So, prognosis is an interesting thing. So, um, I've basically been diagnosed with stage four metastatic breast cancer. So that means that it's left its primary um, its its primary location. So, stage three means it's gone from the breast into the lymph nodes in under your armpit. Um, and stage four means it's travelled out of those lymph nodes and into other areas of the body which is unfortunately what's happened to me um, with the type of cancer that I've got especially in young people it tends to be quite aggressive so it's not it's it, and it, which means it grows quite quickly so it's not unusual for it to have um, sort of all happen quite quickly so they don't think I've had, had that lump for years and not noticed it um, but it, it had unfortunately left, left my lymph nodes already um, and travelled up into the lymph nodes in my neck um, and into some of my bones. I say some of my bones, quite a lot of my bones, but that's actually not unusual In when it sort of gets to that level around your body. There was some concern over my liver, but the, um, I had an MRI scan and the results of that are negative, so it's not in my liver, which is great news. Um, so it was, but it's still quite extensively all over my body. And um, So the treatment options I had been offered um, is basically chemotherapy, um, which in terms of the type of cancer that I have, it's hormone um, responsive. So it's um, treatable with um, a type of chemotherapy that basically shuts down all those hormones to kill the cancer. Now, chemotherapy doesn't actually kill the stem cell of the cancer. So it can can kill it to a point um, and keep it under control. But because it's left the primary part of my my breast and it's become secondary breast cancer they can't get they basically they say it's it's incurable and it's the treatment is palliative now palliative was quite a scary word to me because I'm thinking oh god you know palliative means you know sort of how long mm-hmm. have you got kind of thing and I was very much sort of like I don't want to know I don't want to know don't don't give me years don't give me days because I you know I'm, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be the you know I'm gonna be the odd one out here I, I'm, I'm not going to feel this fit in with the statistics Um, because the internet's a scary place when you start looking at statistics for these kind of things. Um, And actually, as I sort of did a bit more research, um, I found that there are lots of people that live with metastatic bre- breast cancer and just keep it under control effectively with the the chemotherapy, with the um, hormone um, injections to suppress the suppress the hormones that um, mean that the cancer is active in your body effectively. The only glitch with being on treatment for the rest of my life would <laughs> means that I. Um, I'm unable to have children, which was obviously completely devastating to hear at the time. Um, And it's still, you know, pretty heartbreaking for me. But um, we're doing things before I start chemotherapy. Yeah. the, the egg harvesting
0: you're actually you um, you actually just just finished that before before talking about, to me this morning you're just about to start
3: yes i'm in the fertility clinic waiting to have my eggs harvested which has been done on super speed by an amazing doctor in london um so yeah that that's about to happen so i will have so i have the chance to have biological children it's just at the moment the way science is it wouldn't be possible for me to carry a child myself um, so I could have a biological child. It's, so it's sort of the, fir- the start of IVF, the IVF process, effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been doing that over the last two weeks, um, uh, along with having some teeth out and all of the other things that have been going on. Talking to the clinic in Germany, and yeah, so it's it's um, a lot be- a lot's been going on. <laughs>
0: so so we need to get you to Germany because uh, cancer treatment in Germany is that little more um, advanced. It's more yeah. uh, technologically open-minded shall we say and it's
3: it's less it's it's less um the the protocols in the UK there's there's sort of a a medical standard that they have to meet and that's it's quite high but the Germany are more innovative in the way that they um are treating cancer um and yeah it was Johnny Hassett that put me in touch with the the clinic in Germany that he Mm -hmm. dealt with um and yeah. So I've been in touch with them and they can offer me vaccine therapy um, in conjunction with the chemotherapy, um, the hormone injections um, to basically, I, I, don't, I don't know how much you know about vaccine therapy. It's quite, it's, it's quite interesting. I've learned lots in the last couple of days. Um, so it's it, cancer, cancer. At the moment, my body doesn't recognize the cancer cells as foreign. So vaccine therapy, effectively, they take blood from you when the cancer is at the highest point um, in your body. So that, that's effectively now because I haven't had any treatment. They take blood from you and they pull they pull the cancer cells out of your blood because each cancer is, although it's breast cancer or liver cancer or brain cancer or blood cancer, each cancer is actually unique to you personally. So, the it, it, because the cancer contains my DNA. So, when they draw these cancer cells out of my blood, they effectively are able to create a personalized vaccine. So, when they inject the vaccine, once they've created it from those cancer cells, it means that it will teach my body to recognize those cancer cells as foreign so that my own immune system can fight those those cells. So it's sort of the holy grail of cancer treatment is to kill those stem cells. And hopefully the vaccine therapy, if it works, uh, it, it starts the process of, you know, killing my own body, killing those cells rather than being on continuous treatment, if you know what I mean. So it's, it, it's very innovative and it's, it's very expensive, um, but it's it would give me a chance of... Effectively a cure um because i honestly don't believe being told that it's i don't believe that it's not incurable i think yeah these things are you know these things are remarkable and medicine's amazing and i just it, it's going to give me the best chance possible if i can do it effectively
0: well you have our support of course and we <laughs> are hoping that we can get you to the target by tuesday Twenty-five thousand pounds by tuesday is what we want um i can only um Commend your amazing resilience and wish you all the very best. Lucy, thank you very much.
3: Thank you so much, Nick. Thank you.
0: Lucy horan there, and do please help where you can. Um Lucy's GoFundMe page is up and running, courtesy of her friend Laura Gibson Brabazon. And the GoFundMe address is GoFund.me forward slash four eight four O six D39. Four eight four O six Delta That's Lucy Horan, H-O-R-A-N. Okay, so Lydia rejoins me. Back to the gambling act. Stuart Andrew, who one wag cruelly dubbed Stuart Android to me uh, earlier (laughs) in the week after his performance at the uh, the debate or after the debate, when frankly uh, AI could have created and read out the statement that he gave at the back end of that now he has been a, a little more uh, florid in his speech to the betting and gaming council where a certain andrew rhodes chief executive of the gambling commission also spoke lydia and there seemed to be a sort of um spirit of community between yeah good andrew andrew rhodes, and the betting and gaming council judging by michael duggar's recent tweet so what's going on now do you think here and what politics are being played
1: it's it's hard to get a handle on it but it 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 doesn't feel like it's positive news for horse racing necessarily or for hunters uh, and again I make a distinction as Philip Davis did in his speech on the subject and the debate of the subject earlier this week between the bookmaking industry and their customers and increasingly their customers who um, it has been for a very long time who, who uh, use these products um, happily and without detriment to their lives they're the ones that are not heard in this debate and it seems to me that they continue not to be heard um, I agree with you that Stuart Andrew's speech to the betting and gaming council annual annual general meeting yesterday was a little bit less bland than the one earlier in the week but even so it, it just it just felt like a marking time speech to me um he asserts that the white paper the government's white paper strikes the balance between consumer freedom preserving the rights of those who enjoy gambling and suffer no ill effects with a necessary action to tackle harmful gambling and the devastating consequences it can have for some individuals and communities this uh, still asserting this, despite hearing multiple evidence from the former group that it does not, and evidence that the latter group will not, in fact, be helped by these measures. So um, he was talking about how the government is listening to to uh, to views and advice. Uh, Stuart Andrew also spoke on the uh, financial vulnerability checks are intended intended to be introduced in two stages over the summer. Responding to feedback received from the consultation, the Commission has reassured everyone that they will never require gambling businesses to consider an individual's personal details such as their postcode or job title as part of the checks, that's which we knew. But to add on to this, he said, to ease the introduction of the checks, they will initially come into force at a higher threshold for a short period of time before reverting to a lower threshold later in the year. We expect this lower threshold to be closely aligned with that proposed in the white paper and I did wonder whether that might be some movement on there Um, and of course uh, Philip Davis again in his speech earlier in the week was talking was questioning or recommending that uh, net thresholds should be considered rather than the thresholds that uh, as they currently stand um it's just it was full of words. You know, we're clear that financial risk checks should not overregulate the gambling sector, should not unduly disrupt millions of people who gamble without suffering harm and should not cause unnecessary damage to the system. Um Yeah, Uh, he was talking about an industry-led code, an important stepping stone. It's essential that the industry is more transparent with its customers. And that is something that Andrew Rhodes goes on to echo. Horse racing merits four paragraphs in uh, Stuart Andrews' speech, and they were four Quite bland paragraphs. Um, he acknowledges that British racing is a substantial asset to the country, without seemingly acknowledging the impact that is already being had on the horse racing industry. Uh, Andrew Rhodes's speech, however, was more interesting, wasn't it?
0: Uh, yes, Andrew Rhodes, the chief executive of the of the Gambling Commission, um, he's been choosing his moments very carefully, hasn't he? In the last in the last six months, and I was particularly struck, Lydia, by the the piece that the racing post picked up on which was his his commitment to root out black market bookmakers something which he'd been um rather skeptical about in 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 previous interviews as i pointed out on the podcast the other day in september he was pretty dismissive of the assertion that people were flocking to the black market and he reiterated that back in january as well
1: yeah he he absolutely did. It's something of a Volt fast, which he isn't acknowledging is a Volt fast. He's talking about now the gambling commission actively investigating alleged illegal bookmakers, um, gave very little detail of that, understandably. Um and he said he was clamping down on black market operators such as the one that had been highlighted by the Racing Post in its investigation earlier this week. But as you point out, last autumn, Andrew Rhodes told the Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee uh, that P- that um, he hadn't been once given the name of an operator, person, location or anything he could act upon about the black market previously. And and now suddenly work against the black market is, suddenly, is, is quite fully underway. And as you say, he stood by his position Further, there were other elements um to the uh speech that were that were was interesting i thought um from the point of um he, he, greater transparency is something that he he urged. Uh, bookmakers to to um, ensure that they were able to to put across that he he wanted customers to better understand when they were being asked for extra information by the betting company uh, that they had a a, a better understand uh, understanding of what they were being asked for Um, he said um, currently too many customers are given the impression that any check they have to go through is linked to affordability and whilst checking for financial Financial risk is an important part of customer interaction for a small minority of customers. We know it is not the only reason customers are facing checks. Final sentence I held here was was clinching. So if it's your terms and conditions or anti-money laundering or purely for commercial reasons, then you should say so. So, I mean, it's very welcome, and it's something that I've called for on this podcast repeatedly, that consumers have greater clarity of when they are being asked for further information or when restrictions are being placed upon them, that it it should be made clear why this is happening, rather than being able to conflate lots of different ways in which people, uh, in which bookmakers can make it difficult for people to withdraw the money that they've won. Um, And... Basically the last sentence says to bookmakers he reiterates the position he gave to you on luck on Sunday last year that essentially is go ahead and restrict as long as you tell people that why why they're being restricted it is not a fair gambling a- a landscape it is this is not a fair gambling landscape that that uh, Andrew Rhodes in the Gambling Commission is presiding over and he should be more interested i think in in customer rights and and the um people being able to bet freely he should be he, I don't mean without any kind of restriction. I mean with within within some parameters. But uh, you know, restrictions are an issue for for small and large players. The other there was one interesting thing afterwards as well. In that um, in the Q and A afterwards, Andrew Rhodes was asked whether he considered the reporting rate of problem gambling from the NHS Health Survey on which um, the Gambling Commission and the um, DCMS have relied on in. Public consultations is reliable and he was also asked if the new gambling survey for Great Britain which um, Andrew Rhodes said in his speech will be published in July reports a bigger figure than that the inter the questioner said 10 times the health survey will the gambling commission also consider that to be reliable and essentially Andrew Rhodes uh, avoided answering that question so he was asked twice about that and he declined to say um, that he felt that the reported rate of problem gambling is reliable. And that's a, a key point, I think, because so much of the Gambling Commission's evidence-based policy relies on that.
0: All right, it's time for something for the weekend with Sporting Live's Ben Scoop, Linfoot Scoop. Uh, this weekend's action is, is going to be blighted by the weather. And I think probably it's pretty sensible if,
5: Kelso takes centre stage, isn't it? I think it is, Nick. Yeah, like you say, yeah, that lots of rain forecast uh, down at Newbury. We're looking at heavy ground and and uh, really te- testing conditions there. But the Kelso card, um, it's really good, isn't it? And boosted by this hundred thousand pound bonus for for winning the Moor Battle and at the festival, which of course the Shunter did a few years ago, and it's really enhance this race when you when you look at 18 runners. I mean, I remember when Zainar turned up for, for Nicky Henderson and lost at 1-14 to many years ago in a four-runner race, and that was typical of the time, really. So it is a good race to get stuck into.
0: That's right. And, of course, the horses in the more Battle Hurdle, given the conditions of the race now, could be pointed at any number of different races at the Cheltenham Festival, and it does go to show if you use a bit of ingenuity, that's what you, you land up with. How are you looking at it, and where do you think the likeliest... A possibility is of a horse managing to pull off the pull off the double.
5: Well, under control is favourite. The, the mare for Nikki Henderson, and she's obviously really interesting. Owned by J.P. McManus, lightly raced and ran such a good race. Uh, at Doncaster last time in the Grade 2 on the on the uh, first start since wind surgery. Now, there is a little bit of a question mark about the Nikki Henderson stable form, obviously, with the news of Constitution Hill, and he's he's struggling to find a winner at the moment, really. And so that is a question mark with her, and um, I'd, I'd probably be looking to take her on this weekend, even though she's quite an interesting mare going forward. Um, I think when you look at these, uh, when these bonuses are on the line, you've got to look for the shrewd trainers, and I think Dan Skelton definitely comes into that category. I like the look of his sky cutter in this um, a horse who's had a, a few issues and moved to his yard from Phil Kirby's. But, he, you know, he's a very good horse, 100 rated on the flat. And he just finally looks to be getting to grips with the hurdling game, judging by a wide margin win at Carlisle last time. So I think it's really interesting that he's been pointed here and he'd be uh, my idea of a, a likely winner this weekend.
0: And no festival entries, amazingly
5: no well he's probably just rated a little bit too lowly off 121 yeah. isn't he yeah um but certainly a nice project for the future for Dan Skelton and uh and you know I know the bonus is on the line but it's a good pot in its own right this race
0: and what else have you got for me
5: well I'll, um going to Doncaster it's obviously the uh the Grimthorpe chase there um always a good race sometimes uh A bit of a grand national trial. I don't think it's probably going to be that this year looking at the entries. There aren't too many in there with uh, national entries. But I like the look of Java Point in the race for for Henry Oliver. Um, Henry Oliver won on this weekend last year when he won the the Greatwood Chase at Newbury. And I think he's got an in-form horse uh, horse in Java Point who beat certainly red last time at Sandown in good style. Only gone up £4 for that. And he's got a little bit of back form at Doncaster in his profile. And I think he could run well this weekend.
0: Um, obviously, you've been scanning what's been happening Cheltenham wise this week. Any strong thoughts off the back of what you've seen or heard?
5: Yeah, well, I've been around. Um, I was at the Paul Nichols uh, festival trip on on Monday and Fergal O'Brien's on Tuesday. Saw you in the Hollow Bottom Nick uh, holding cart in that uh, in, in good style as always. And um, I I went to Nichols's and. I feel like he's got a really strong uh, team, hasn't he, for Cheltenham. Not numerically like he used to have, but every horse he's taking looks to have some sort of chance. Ginny's destiny certainly in the Turners looks to be his best chance of festival glory this year, you would think, Uh, just with the way that he's improved since uh, coming from Tom Lacey's, he loves the new course at Cheltenham. You really do think he's going to go out there and and be the one to beat in that race. And and you can't argue with um, Fergal O'Brien's operation and how they of uh, campaign dice Enos. You know, it's really interesting the fact that he's campaigned her without picking up a £5 pound penalty for the Mayor's Novices hurdle in a bid to get that first festival winner. He's not from 49. He's had four seconds. Can he do it this year? And um, she's just a, a mayor blessed with enormous talent, lots of speed. There's a couple of big Irish hot pots coming over. Of course, there is. There is for every race. But, you know, because she's getting the £5 pounds from Gordon Elliott and Willie Mullins' Mayors, she could be the one to beat in that race uh, Scoop enjoy your weekend we will
0: be back next week for more Cheltenham fun cheers Nick and you uh, Ben Scoop Linfoot there with something for the weekend in association with the sporting life that was Ben Linford. this is Lydia Hislop and Lydia has a tip for you a well informed tip I think
1: yeah i think i'm going close to home so a horse that i have a that my husband my, me and my husband steve have a a, a small share in well Claxon,
0: hang on hang on hang on hang on for those for those um regular listeners to this podcast um that this is the first time the great man has been referred to as my <laughs> husband steve okay so just that right how long have you been with steve I'm I at least as long as you've known me so it's got to be 20 20 plus years hasn't it
1: yes i i've put my own foot in here in this here haven't i yeah uh, 26 years
0: 26 years and so it took you just the 25 and a half to get married
1: yes we got married last october that's right which,
0: which you then just dropped actually into conversation into <laughs> conversation a couple of months ago um,
3: <laughs>
1: that's
0: right i'm i'm guessing right say so here are my guesses your train was not as long as lady dies <laughs> and you didn't you didn't have a thousand people there that's what i'm thinking
1: uh correct okay <laughs> both counts.
0: okay well i mean i think it's only a p- right that you get official congratulations from all listeners <laughs> of the night like daily podcast
1: <laughs> thank you very much thank you uh, oh dear me and my big mouth right okay back to Penzance. So anyway,
0: you and your husband Steve have a share in Penzance.
1: Yes, we do. And he is the Penzance that is is back in action after his fantastic win at Newcastle on New Year's Day. He is running at Lingfield uh today in the 422 um, and I think he has a very good chance. He's he's well drawn. He should be able to sit just behind the pace, um, and nicely positioned. Question mark about whether he absolutely handles Lingfield. That is an unknown, but there's no reason to think that he won't. It was very early in his career when he last encountered the track, and he's very very much on the up. And obviously, the aim is uh, the uh, Good Friday, the the oh. finals day. So I'm I'm really looking forward to that.
0: And as the Sharabang has already been booked for Newcastle, he better put his best foot forward today. <laughs> That's Penzance. That was Lydia. This was the Nick Luck Daily podcast. And that was Friday, March the 1st. And just to remind you of the GoFundMe page for Lucy, it is, um, I, I mean, I will put it on my Twitter feed, which is probably easier, but it's go, gofund.me uh, forward slash 48406D, small d, 39. But it's Lucy Horan, H-O-R-A-N. And I will put that up on my Twitter feed or my X feed in a moment. It's and already, it's already getting going as well, which is great. I'm very confident that we will raise 25000 and more by Tuesday. Thank you very much for listening. Charlotte will be back this evening uh, and I will be back Monday morning. That's it, it for today. Bye for now. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you by Timeform the trusted source of racing data and analysis. By the Racehorse Owners Association and by the Racing App in partnership with Fitstairs.